today we're going to look at two parables. I'm going to try to. It's five o'clock. We've got one hour. I'm going to try to cover two parables. The parable of the two sons and the parable of the wicked tenants. But before I do, I need to kind of give you the context of, where, of why Jesus tells these parables. Context is important. Um, so let me just kind of just paraphrase what's on the screen there. Uh, Jesus had just cleared the temple. For most of you probably know this story. He walked into the, it's a famous story because it gives, it makes Jesus look human. <laughs> he walks in, he's angry, he throws out the money changers. They were changing money in the temple and Jesus says, get out. You've, you, you, this is a house, my father's house is a house of prayer. You've turned it into a, a den of thieves. And, he, and as he kicked them out, the, the, the religious leaders came up to him and said, by whose authority do you do these things? By whose authority do you do these things? And so Jesus says, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll answer your question, but first answer me a question. <laughs> I love that. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? And the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they get together and they say, uh, if we say it came from God, then we condemn ourselves because we rejected John. But if we say it came from man, then we will be rejected by the people because everyone loves John. So what do we do? And it's interesting that Matthew's telling us their conversation. And they say, uh, <clears throat> we have an answer. We will not answer your question. <laughs> and so Jesus says, well, then neither will I answer your question. Love that. No, I don't. Actually, I hate that. Because, raise your hand if you agree with me, Jesus doesn't seem to answer our questions. He doesn't answer our questions, Right? If you look at Jesus' ministry, he's not in the business of answering our questions. <laughs> Almost every time Jesus is asked a question, he does not answer it. I don't think he does. Or at least, I don't think the people who asked the question felt like they got an answer. James and John, for instance, walked up and said, Hey, when we get to heaven, can we sit at your left and to your right? And Jesus goes off into this long soliloquy of things. And John's like, I think that was a no. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, he didn't quite answer the question. The religious leaders ask him, hey, why don't you show us a sign so we can know you are who you say you are. Jesus says, you want a sign? I got your sign. Jonah. Boom. Done. Jonah was in the fish. I'll be in the, I'll be in the ground. What? What are we talking about? They didn't get it, right? Totally. Even after Jesus died and resurrected and spent many days, I don't know how many days, but many days with his disciples, teaching them all what the, that the Old Testament said about him, they said, okay, Lord, and they've already asked this question a half a dozen times, is now the moment in which your kingdom will come? And Jesus is like, not, don't, no, not, it's not for you to know. Still didn't answer the question. And if you were, if I can just be honest, he still does that. You ask him a question, you want an answer. He might be giving you an answer by circumstances or by stories in your life, but yet you never really know, do you? Just don't know. One thing I can be sure of is that Jesus is not in the business of answering questions. He's in one business only. His business is inviting you to trust him. Look, I'm not going to answer your question, but I invite you to trust me. But, okay, I'll trust you, but where are we going? I'm not going to answer that question. Abraham, I'll let you know when you get there. Okay. Moses, I want you to go let my people go. Yeah, but I stutter, and, you know, I'm afraid, and, Jesus, and God says, well, I don't. Go. But, but, but don't you worry. Just trust me. The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees are asking Jesus, by whose authority do you do these things? And that's important. That word authority is important. Um, it, they're, they're asking him, and another way of saying it is, who do you think you are? And we already know who Jesus thinks he is, <laughs> but they're asking him specifically, who do you think you are? By whose authority? I want to just refer you to Matthew chapter 7, just about 20 chapters earlier, about 18 chapters earlier. 
it says this, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not like the scribes. He's not quoting Timothy Keller. He's not quoting Robert Capon. He's just saying, this is how it is. Boom. <laughs> He's got authority. And so this authority is important. So as we look at these two parables, in a sense, it's Jesus not answering the question about who gave him the authority. He's still not answering the question. I want you to see it. Even though the parables are going to sound like he's answering the question, in the end, he's not answering the question. The question's already answered. By my authority do I do these things? That's the answer to that question. I'm God, okay? That's what I've been saying. That's what you know already. I'm God. It's by my authority that I do these things. And so these two parables are not Jesus answering the question. They're him continuing to invite them. Why don't you trust me? And if you don't trust me, then you're condemned already. He does not reach out to convince us. He simply stands there in all of his attracting or repelling, depending on what side of the coin you're on, fullness and his authority, he, he, and he dares us to believe him. I'm not going to answer your question. I just dare you to trust me. Believe me. Okay? You want to look at the parables? You've heard these parables before, um, so let's look at them. The first one is the parable of the two sons. All right, here we go. Two sons. I love this parable. There are two sons. Let's read it. So Jesus says, what do you think? So he just said, I'm not going to answer your question, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son and said to the same son, and said the same thing. And he answered, I will go, sir. But then he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of the father? And the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees said, the first so Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And even when you saw that, you still did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. This be the word of the Lord. So the first thing I want to ask is this. What is this parable about? Because you've heard it before, right? And you've probably even cited it before. So I bet you've got an opinion about it. Two sons, which one obeyed God? Which one did the will of the Father? So just let's take a couple of minutes, discuss at your table what you think this parable is about. And another way of asking that question is, for those of you who are homeschooled, um, how do you uh, describe or explain this parable to your coworker? What, how, what, would you, what do you think it's about? All right, so I want to say that I think that this parable is not about words versus works, which I think is the way it normally gets spun. The flaky person who said with his mouth he would do it but didn't do it, that's words versus work. Um, the one who said he wouldn't but then did do it, word versus work. So, you know, we know a lot of people who say they're Christians. You know you do this. And you look at them and say, but I'm not so sure. She says she's a Christian, but I also saw her reading Fifty Shades of Grey. So I want to say this. I don't think this parable, is, this parable is not about words versus works. Make your works equal your words, although it would be very easy to preach that sermon. Man, I could, I, I, if I wanted to preach that sermon, I wouldn't even need notes. I'd just start getting on a soapbox and saying, y'all need to stop not doing what you say you're going to do. Do what you say you're going to do. If you love Jesus, prove it. And there's a green bowl at your table. That's an excellent opportunity for you to prove it. <laughs> right? Amen. Amen. That, 
And you know what? I, I need to preach that sermon, actually, but, but that, would be, that would be wrong. I don't think the parable is about words versus work. I think the parable is about faith versus unfaith, and I'll explain that. It's faith versus unfaith. One of them has faith. One of them hasn't done, does no faith. It doesn't matter what they say, and it really doesn't matter what they do, but I'll come back to this in a minute for Paul. It doesn't really matter what they do. It only matters what they believe, and what they believe will, will determine what they end up doing, right? It's about faith versus non-faith. And to prove my point, I want you to notice the number of times the word believe is in this parable, or, or at least in Jesus' explanation. He says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. <laughs> and even still, when you saw that, you didn't change your mind afterwards and believe him. So again, Jesus is not in the business of answering questions. He's in the business of inviting you to trust him, to believe me. Jesus asks you, will you work for me? Pharisee? Pharisee says, no, I will not. Or, or yes, I will, because I'm a religious person. The one who does shows faith. The one who doesn't shows unfaith. Do you see that? Another way of doing it would be to ask Jesus' question again. Here's Jesus' question. In the end of the whole parable, here's his question. Which of the two did the will of the Father? So let's, let's unpack that for a second and try to interpret the parable. What is the will of the Father? To go work in the field. No, no, no. Let's just, let's just interpret it in our life. What is the will of the Father? Well, I can quote Jesus' words for you. In John chapter 6, Jesus says, For this is the will of the Father. Are you ready for it? Here it comes. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him would have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I want you to hear this real quickly before I move on. The will of the Father is that anyone who looks at Jesus will believe in him. And if you believe in him, he will raise you up on the last day. Jesus didn't say, for this is the will of the Father. Stop listening to rock and roll. Stop listening to country. Stop watching rated R movies. And only listen to Christian music. That's not what he said. The will of the Father is that you believe. That's the will. So in the end, Jesus says, which one did the will of the Father? And the answer is, the one who actually ended up doing it. It doesn't matter what you say. You and I all know that talk is cheap, right? Talk is so cheap. I can't tell you how cheap talk is. doesn't matter what you say. doesn't necessarily even matter what you do because, as you were saying, some people can do it for the wrong reasons. In the end, all that really matters is your faith, and your faith will produce, will produce um, some evidence, that's for sure. So the parable is not about words versus works. It's about faith versus unfaith. Let me read Capon's quote for you. The point is simply that judgment falls adversely on unfaith alone. And it's underscored by Jesus' insistence that the tax collectors and the harlots will go into the kingdom before the religious rulers. It is not that those disreputable types will be saved because they straightened up and flew right. It is that they will be saved just because they believed. That's the gospel in its purest sense. And I'm preaching it to you now. That's the gospel in its purest sense. And let me just illustrate it a little bit more for you. It's the same as all the parables we've just covered in the past six weeks. Think about this for a second. Um, the first son, the son who said no, but then did it and did the will of the father, he's just like the tax collector who said, Father, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And, God, and Jesus says, he's justified. The Pharisee was not. It's just like the riffraff workers who got hired at the last hour and worked one measly hour and got paid the same amount as the guy who thought he could just put in a full day's work. 
It's just like the prodigal son who took his father's inheritance and spent it on prostitutes and gambling and then came back and got a party. In the end, they're all the ones who sort of kind of aren't trusting God, aren't living for God, aren't who should be in, but then at the end believe and therefore are in. And there's more parables yet to come. I can't wait to get to them. And the second son is just like the other people in those parables. Remember the prodigal son had an older brother? He was in, right? I've never, ever did anything wrong. I've always, and you never even killed a goat for me. Same thing. The workers who worked all day long, they were in. They were invited in. They were there working hard all day long. But at the end, when they realized what this was really all about, grace alone, they didn't like it. No, I don't like this great stuff. They don't, they don't deserve to get paid the same as me. I worked in the heat of the day. The Pharisee, I tithe of my mint and my dill. I give to the poor. I, I, I obey all the scriptures. I worship every Saturday in synagogue. And God says, I tell you the truth, the tax collector is justified, not you. So it's the same. Do you see it? It's about faith, not about words versus works. Robert Capon says, if you then expand upon the, I want you to hear this, if you then expand upon the parable, you get an instant application of it to the life of the church in all ages. For no matter how much we give lip service to the notion of free grace and dying love, we do not like it. It's just too indiscriminate. It's, it lets rotten sons and crooked tax farmers and common tarts into the kingdom, and it thumbs its nose at really good people. We will continue to sing Amazing Grace, sweet the sound, in church, but we will jolly well be judicious when it comes to explaining to the riffraff what it actually means. We will assure them, of course, that God loves them and forgives them, but we will make it clear that we expect them to clean up their act before we clasp them seriously to our bosom. I've been preaching grace here all this series, and we don't like it. We really don't. Because it sounds like an excuse to just get to do whatever you want. And we don't like that. <laughs> but it's true. So at that, I need to stop, the, back the truck up a little bit, and do some house business. Because I forgot, thanks to Paul who reminded me last week, that you, you might still be confused about that. Because I'm not confused about it anymore. <laughs> I used to be confused about the whole grace versus works thing. But I'm not anymore. I'm so free. Um, I'm free. Like a bird now. I want you to be free like a bird now, too. So, so last week, I was talking about the parable of the talents. Do you remember that? There were two boys, or I'm assuming there were boys. They were given talents, uh, and a talent is an extremely large sum of money. They were given this talent to do something with it and to do business and to trade with it, and one of them didn't do it, and he buried it. And as I mentioned last week, the two who did it, Again, that was not a parable about doing the right thing and then you get saved. It's about faith. The two who received the gift from God, the expensive, extravagant gifts from God, they can do nothing but multiply that gift. If God gives you love and grace, you can do nothing but multiply that love and grace. Or else, see also John 1, 1 John, right? If the love of God is in you, then, you, you know, then you'll love others. If the love of God is not in you, then you won't love others. And you can't say the love of God is in you and don't love some of those because you just can't. If the love is in you, then you can't do anything but multiply it. But the one who buried it said in his head, God, you're mean, you're nasty, you steal, you take. So I'm afraid of you and I'm going to bury it. In the end, the two who made a prophet, they had faith. And the one who didn't make a prophet and buried it, he had no faith. That's the issue. 
And so last week we said, so you see, it's not works that saves us, it's faith that saves us. And Paul, thank you again, Paul, asked the question, but what about James? James says the exact opposite of that. <laughs> Literally, James says, so you see, it's not faith alone, <laughs> it's faith plus works. Where does works come in? And so let me explain this. The two boys who made a profit, their faith was that they trusted God, and so they, they took a leap of faith, a step of faith, and invested that money, and their work was that leap of faith. Obviously, they had faith, and that was evidenced by their work. The one who didn't have faith, didn't have faith, was afraid of God, and buried it, and his actions proved that he didn't have faith. So faith does produce works, right? But we can never get those confused, and unfortunately, we do. So I need to say this. Um, in the history of the church, Orthodox, gospel-centered theologians will tell you that there are two extremes to the gospel. Two extremes to the gospel. Just as Jesus was hung between two thieves, there are two thieves in the church that want to steal the gospel from you. And the first thief, thief, the first thief is religion. And the second thief is irreligion. So religion wants to steal the gospel for you, and they want you to be legalistic. Obey the rules. Do the thing. It's not about faith. It's about doing it. Do what you say. Do it. <coughs> Make money, right? Double it. The opposite of religion is irreligion. It's, look, it's all good, man. God loves me. God is love, right? It doesn't matter. You know God's love and stuff. And that's irreligious. We have no concern for God, no concern for kingdom things. We don't love Jesus. We're just living our own life. You can say it's legalism versus license. But both of them are thieves that steal the gospel. The gospel is in the middle. It is grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. And if you love Jesus, then of course your heart is going to overflow with love for others. And you're going to evidence that with your life. But you can't do it the other way around. You can't put the cart before the horse. Here's the best way I think I can explain it. As the song that I was playing for you as you were doing your discussion, just give me Jesus. You and I all would agree we're full of sin. We're full of mistakes. We're full of regrets. I don't pray enough. I don't pray enough. I don't lead my kids spiritually. I don't lead my wife spiritually. I don't even lead this church spiritually all the time, right? In the end, we're all failures. Just give me Jesus. That's what I want. I trust that. I believe that despite my failures, Jesus loves me because he said he did. And in the end, when I go to heaven, it's not going to be because of anything I did. Thank goodness. <laughs> it's going to be because I trusted in Jesus. And if you have anything you can brag about, you better be careful because you'll sound like the Pharisee who says, I'm so thankful that I'm so good at such and this, right? No, don't do that. And I want to say this, and it's the same with you. The first son who said no, but then did it, it's saying, you do it all the time. I know you do it. God says, hey, and you say no. Raise your hand if you do that. All right. It's the same with you. God loves you. He's going to forgive you. Your faith comes in, and you do it, and he... It's not because you did it that makes you saved. It's because in doing it, you prove, now I trust you. Now I love you. Now I, now I get you. Does that make sense? So you see, it's not a conflict. It's not a conflict at all. <laughs> that is so freeing, by the way. If you can take the whole grace and works and put them together and say, ah, oh, it's, it's always grace. 
always grace. Just remember that if you love Jesus, that's going to be evident. If you love your wife, it's evident. Your wife knows if you love her. Your kids know if they love them, right? The Lord knows if you love him. That's why Jesus says, I never knew you. You didn't love me. All right, let's move on. Let's move on. Next parable. Um, that's the two sons. Next, uh, next parable is called the wicked tenants. Matthew 21 through 33. Let me read it for you. Here another parable, Jesus says. <clears throat> Man, I need to move quick. All right. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower, and he leased it to some tenants. And then he went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And then the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Sounds like the prophets. Again, he sent another servant. He sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his own son to them. This sounds familiar. Saying, they will certainly respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and we'll have his inheritance. Which makes absolute no sense, but nevertheless. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him outside of the, of the city. And when, therefore, Jesus asks, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Question mark. Jesus is asking a question again. And so they answered his question, and they said this. Listen to it. <laughs> he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of its season. <laughs> it's so fascinating. Jesus is amazing. Because if you think about it, um, he wouldn't answer their question. And they wouldn't answer his question. And so he tells them a couple of parables and asks them a question. And they answer his question, and they walk right into a trap. Did you notice that? I mean, you got to think about it. These people, these Pharisees and scribes and, and Sadducees, they're not stupid. They don't want to walk in. Remember the whole long conversation? If we say John the Baptist came from God, and if we say this, they know the rules of asking questions and getting, getting trapped. <laughs> and yet, Jesus tells them this strand of stories. And they're like, we're not going to let you walk us into a trap. And he says, which one? What is he going to do? And they said, they're going to kill him. Jesus said, you said it. <laughs> it's so amazing. They, just, they walked right into that one, you know? It's pretty funny. The story of the wicked tenants is the same as the story of the two sons, except it's from God's perspective, not our perspective. Our perspective. God says, do you trust me? Will you do what I say to you do? No, yes, do it, no, right? This parable is, I've got a son. I'm sending them to these people. Do they respond with faith or do they not? And when they don't, he asks, what will God do? And they answer, God will. See, it's God's perspective. God will kill them. <laughs> I have to tell you this, though, because this parable makes so much beautiful sense if you understand the book of Isaiah. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever read the book of Isaiah and remember it. <laughs> I love the way that some of you started and then turned it down. I would say, I, I'm almost tempted to say the book of Isaiah is the most important book in the Bible. Most important. Um, and you've heard me say this before, but let me repeat myself. It is the Bible in miniature. Um, the book of Isaiah is 66 chapters long, which reflects to the 66 books of the Bible. The first half of Isaiah is all about God's anger and just wrath against Israel. And the last half of the Bible is all about his forgiveness to them because of the suffering servant. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's unbelievably beautiful. And it's American. If you read it, America is all over there. And you're like, whoa. 
we're in trouble. But let me just share something with you about Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah is essentially about this. God, did you know the gospel's in the Old Testament? The good news is in the Old Testament. The good news has always been around. The good news is this. God loves the world. He loves his people. He's good. He's merciful. In the Old Testament, the word is chesed. His love is never-ending, never, never stopping, always gracious, long arm. God's always good. And he's chosen a specific people, a special people called the Israelites, to be his people. And he wants those people to tell the rest of the world that good news. You remember lines from the Old Testament that says you're a city on a hill. You're a, you're a, you're a, you're a royal priesthood. You're, a na- you're my called out ones. You're my nation. I want you, you the, 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 the nations of the world will gather around you to learn of his ways. It's all what Isaiah is all about that. But in the beginning, God's saying, but you're not doing it. You suck at it. I mean, I'm not even, that is weak compared to what God says in Isaiah. I mean, he says some nasty things in there, to tell you the truth. In fact, if you want to open up your Bible to Isaiah chapter 5, I'm only going to read a few verses because I'm embarrassed to read the other ones. He gets mad at them. He says, you are not who I want you to be. I I chose you to be a special people with a special message, the message of hope and grace and love and light and fruit and everything, right? And you guys suck at this. In fact, you've become like the rest of the world. You've become like the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and you worship their gods. So in Isaiah chapter 5, he says this. I'm just going to read it for you. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. Sound familiar? It sounds just like the parable we just read, right? Just like it. Jesus is pretty cool. But it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not already done in it? And when I looked for it to give me grapes, it did not give me any. It gave me wild grapes. I'm going to skip ahead because it gets embarrassing at that point and read verse 25. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quake, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets, for all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. (laughs) It's the same thing. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes who are testing Jesus now, Jesus just told this parable about the same vineyard. He, they know what he's talking about. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about the people who have been destined for this purpose. And by the way, do you notice that this is Missio Dei theology? God wants to send his people out with the mission of God to tell the nations, Abraham, you will bless the nations. David, you will rule over the nations. Israel, you will be a city on a hill, a light unto the nations. It's the mission of God. It's the Missio Dei. Um, so to move on, though, because of time, let's just do what we did for the last parable and revisit the question that Jesus asked. After the parable's over, he asks a telling question, which is getting at the heart of what he's trying to say. And his question is this. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? <laughs> and they answered, he will put them to death and give it to someone else 
who shows that they have faith, who brings the fruit at the appropriate time. Now, I know you can get theological and you can talk about Jews and Gentiles and all that, but let's just skip all that for now, and let's just focus on faith. You can make an argument that's about Jews and Gentiles, and I agree it is about Jews and Gentiles, but that's not going to help us. Who cares if you theologically get a big head about Jews and Gentiles and dispensational theology, okay? Let's just ask ourselves, what does it mean for me as a person who has faith or who has lack of faith? And here's what it means. Do you know what comes after Isaiah chapter 5? You're right, Isaiah chapter 6. <laughs> I was going to say that. You beat me to it. Uh, you know what's in Isaiah 6? It's the pivot chapter of the whole book. And it's the chapter in which Isaiah meets God face to face. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord lofty and exalted, and seraphim hovered around him, each having six wings, and with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and they called out one to another, Holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. And he said, woe is me, I'm an unclean man, and I have unclean lips, I'm good as dead. And, and God speaks for the first time, and he says, whom shall we send? Do you hear the Missio Dei theology again? Who shall I send? And Isaiah says, send me. God says, okay, we'll send you. And he says, what do you want me to say? And God says, say this, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of these people dull. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What? <laughs> exactly. And God doesn't even really answer Isaiah's question. Isaiah says, what should I say when I, you're sending me? What should I say? And he says, say this, which isn't something that you would say. The Lord says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Maybe, maybe Isaiah did say that. But the, but the point that, that I think God is saying is, no one's going to get what I'm trying to do. See also Isaiah 53, Jesus will come, die. It is by his stripes that we are healed. It is by his wounds that we are free. It is, it is the suffering servant, the dying Jesus, who is going to save us. But no one's going to hear that. No one's going to understand that. Every time you preach it, it's going to be foolishness to them. Mike, where are you going with this? I thought we were talking about tenants in the field. It, it, it connects, and here's why. Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. In other words, sharing good news with people and overflowing with gospel grace to others. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Again, what? <laughs> But let me interpret. Jesus is saying, you want to know by whose authority I do these things? It's me. It's me, 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 me. It's by my authority that I do these things. And you can't believe that. You will not, and I'm inviting you to believe it, but you won't believe it. And in fact, because you won't believe it, I will become the chief cornerstone, the capstone that you will stumble upon. You will fall on me. You will trip over me. I will crush you. Because in the end, everyone's invited. Everyone's welcome. Everyone's saved. I will die for the sins of the world, Jesus says. Colossians says, if I be lifted, if Jesus says if I, in John, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Everyone's saved. Except for those who just refuse to be saved. Who won't get it. Who won't see it. No, no, I don't like that. I don't like this grace thing. I don't like that I worked all day in the field and got paid the same amount of these guys who only worked an hour. I don't like the fact that I do all these things and the tax collector and the prostitute gets in. I don't like that. Well, then you don't like me. And you don't know me. And you don't love me. 
So what can I do but to try to present myself to you once more again, and you still reject me, and so I become this stumbling stone for you that you will, it is going to crush you. The gospel is either going to be good news or it's going to crush you. In the end, nothing, nothing is going to escape the gospel. That's whose authority I preach these things. Paul says later on in 1 Corinthians, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's the cross. That's the gospel. It's a, what is that word? Stumbling block. It's a stumbling block. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it's, it, the, the Greek word is scandalon. It's scandalous. <laughs> to the Jews, it's folly to the Gentiles. And, 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 to, and, to, and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, to those who get it, whether you're Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what does all that mean? Let me conclude. Again, it's simply put, give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Theologically, we don't have to have all, the, all of it figured out. And anyone who tells you they do, be careful of them, right? With your own life, I, 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 I pity the fool who thinks he's got it all figured out. Because you don't. I was better when I was 16 than I am today. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting worse when it comes to having it figured out the way I live my life. It's not about what you say or what you do. It's about what you believe. Do you believe Jesus? This picture, by the way, I took it at the museum. It was on the wall. I took a picture with my phone. Pretty good, huh? Um, it's an ancient Italian, I don't know his name, artist. And it's obviously the story of Jesus beckoning the children to come unto me. Let the children come unto me, for, the, for such, is the, such belongs the kingdom of God. In the end, our faith is as simple as a child. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you know what? Do you have it figured out? No. Do you know where he's going? No. Do you trust him? Yes. So will you go? Yes, I will go.